Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to be presenting to you a Twitter Spaces talk with Elon Musk, where he discusses the latest updates for the Starship Super Heavy program after the launch attempt that happened on 420 of this year. And there's some very good insight from Elon himself in this episode. So please sit back and relax and listen to this Twitter Spaces recording. Tim Dodd from Everyday Astronaut is... Nice enough to co-host. And uh, Tim, if there's people that uh, you want to add to speak and provide some input or questions, definitely feel free to just... Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Elon. Hey, Irene. Hey, Elon. It's been a long time. Yeah, <laughs> it has. That was very exciting to be in Boca Chica. You always <laughs> live up to your, uh, your promises about exciting times with SpaceX. Yes. I, punctuality is not my strong suit, but I do deliver in the end. Yes, you do. <laughs> Excitement was guaranteed and it was delivered. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we can just get right into it. So I think probably people have enough time to get on or hopefully. hopefully. Yeah, as <clears throat> basically the outcome was roughly in the sort of what I expected and, and maybe slightly exceeding my expectations, but roughly what I expected, which was, or hoped for, I should say, which is that we would get clear of the pad with minimal damage to the pad. And I'm glad to report that the, the pad damage is actually quite small and looks like it can be repaired quickly. And that we would also get significant in-flight data, particularly with respect to the pressurizing of the tanks with the propellant liquids, which is called autogenous pressurization as opposed to, say, Falcon 9, which uses helium pressurization. But helium is in very short supply and extremely expensive. It's way better to, or to essentially pressurize with the liquid form of the oxidized raw fuel. So that, that actually looked quite good. And we also went supersonic, which is, that was no problem at all. And but the, so I'm going through obviously some good news items here. The vehicle structural margins appear to be better than we expected. <laughs> <laughs> As we can tell by the fact that the vehicle is actually doing somersaults towards the end and still staying intact. So that's also good. And uh, yeah, so overall, I actually feel like that was a great flight. Our SpaceX team did excellent work. We made a lot of progress. And I think from a technic from a you know, rocket standpoint and pad standpoint, we are probably ready to launch in six to eight weeks. The longest lead item on that is probably requalification of the flight termination system. Because we did initiate the flight termination system, but it was not enough to, it, it took way too long to rupture the tanks. So we need a, basically a much, we need more de detonation cord to unzip the tanks at altitude and ensure that, the, that they, basically the rocket explodes immediately if there's an A if flight termination is necessary. So requalification re of the, is, is, I'm just guessing here that requalification of the much longer de detonation cord to unzip the rocket in a bad situation is probably the uh, long lead item. Um, what was the time lag? It was pretty long. I think it was on the order of 40 seconds-ish. So quite long. The Yeah, so... Now, it, the, the rocket was in a relatively low air density situation. So the aerodynamic forces that it was experiencing were 
would be less than if it was at a lower lower down in the atmosphere. And so the, the aerodynamic forces would have, in, I think, at a lower point in the atmosphere, aided in the destruction of the vehicle. And in fact, that's what happened when the vehicle got to a low enough altitude. The atmospheric density was enough to cause structural failure. But this is obviously something that we want to make super sure is solid before proceeding with the next flight. Let's see, I'll go through a bunch of notables. So we, we actually, at liftoff, there were three engines that we didn't, we, we chose not to start, essentially, or that hit aborts. That, and so we actually lifted off with 30 engines, which is the minimum number of engines. Those engines did not explode, but they were just, the system didn't think they were healthy enough to bring them to full thrust, so they were shut down. Then at T plus 27 seconds, engine 19 lost communications, concurrent with some kind of energetic event that liberated the outer heat shield from the e engines 17, 18, 19, and 20 area. You can see this on video, actually. And by the way, if people have like basically think that maybe some, something different from this occurred, that would be interesting to, because I, I know pe some people have looked very closely frame by frame at video, but this is the SpaceX best assessment after a week. Anyway, so something bad happened at T plus 27 seconds, because engine 19 lost all communications and some kind of explosion happened to knock out the heat shields of engines 17, 18, 19, and 20. And uh, yeah, and there were visible fires seen from the aft end starting after this event and continuing through flight. The rocket kept going though, for at T plus 62 seconds, we see additional aft heat shield damage near engine 30. However, the engine continues to run. And then at T 85 seconds is where <laughs> things really hit the fan. We see engine six with loss of communication to thrust vector control. And roughly from this point onwards, we lose thrust vector control of the rocket. So we lose steering at T plus 85 seconds. Um, was that engine six that kept trying to relight too? Possibly. It uh, well, like, I, I don't know. Was there one yeah. that it, one looked like in footage, like it just kept attempting to relight, relight, relight over and over, which is pretty wild to see. I don't think I've ever seen that before. And it was one of the center-ish engines. That's interesting. Okay, we do have relight logic in the center engines, but not in the outer engines, I believe. So the so basically, landing engines have relight logic. The perimeter engines don't. So that that is that's entirely possible. Although, if the engine is detecting significant issues, it should not be going into a relight cycle. So what, yeah. What's your best guess as to what caused the initial engine issues, and then? I guess it cascaded after that, but what do you think happened? It's not, I think we don't know with certainty. Obviously, the rocket stayed on the launch pad for a while, and we did generate quite the rock tornado at the base <laughs> of the vehicle. And at, our first guess would have been that the rock tornado would have caused potentially significant damage to the engines. But at least we, don't, we do actually do not see obvious... We, we actually do... We weirdly do not see evidence of the rock tornado actually damaging engines or heat shields in a material way. But it may have, but we have not yet seen evidence of that. For the next flight, we certainly will be taking off faster. So this, for this flight, we're erred on the side of babying the engines and just gently starting each engine one at a time. And there were quite a, the engines on Booster 7 were built over a long period of time. So each engine was a little bit of a unique item. and 
whereas the engines on Booster 9, which is next, are much newer and more inconsistent and re really with uh, significant reliability improvements over Booster 7. So I think we'll see a much more robust engine situation with Booster 9. The heat shield, both, or I should say the shields, which are both force and heat shields around the engines for Booster 9 are much better because they were retrofitted for Booster 7, we retrofitted heat shields, whereas Booster 9 is designed in, so they're, they're, they're much stouter. Will you and, be doing something with the Raptor chill system on, the, on Booster 9 differently than what you did with 7? It yeah. seems like that was like an expendable part of the pad, essentially, with having all of those hoses rip free. I'm guessing that's something you would like to avoid having to replace every time in the future. Yeah, over time, we're definitely, it needs to be like a rapid reflight capability, so there can't be any expendable items over time. It, it was actually just good to get this vehicle off the ground because we've made so many improvements in this Booster 9 and beyond that it really, we really just needed to fly this vehicle and then move on to the much improved Booster 9 and later ship designs. But the, so the thing that we, we want to make sure of probably most with the next flight is that we do not have that any kind of central nexus that controls that affects multiple engines is extremely robust and with extra shielding so that that we don't have a, a sort of a single point that can take out multiple engines and for sure we don't want a single point that can take out thrust vector control which is engine steering the range of detail we can go into here is like level nine rocket wizardry all the way to how do rockets work <laughs> Understood. Can I try again? Uh, I, have, I can confirm that we have all been doing a massive amount of speculation out here. And I guess one of the big points that a lot of us have been wondering is related to stage separation. So yeah. I guess the two-part question, like what actually triggers um, second stage ignition? And also the second part of that question, did Ship 24 attempt to light its engines after the destruction of Booster 7? No, it did not. It, it, when flight termination is executed, it's executed on both. So the ship currently does not attempt to save itself. Arguably, maybe it should. That's a good point. Yeah, it's crazy. It looks like the engines lit after the booster let go, and after the booster finally blew up, like there's what looks like. a termination event but the, the but like the so the, the big things that are like important for the next flight are uh, ensuring that thrust vector control we don't lose thrust thrust vector control so isolation of thrust vector control which with the booster 9 is a lot easier because we use electric motors to steer the engines as opposed to hydraulic actuators where you've got a common manifold between the hydraulic actuators so if you lose hydraulic pressure it's you can lose multiple engines essentially if you have some kind of failure in the hydraulic system. The electric actuated engines will be much more isolated and not have a single event failure as long as they did not lose power or comms. Elon, since you've gone ahead and excavated your your launch mount a bit, I assume you're going to go ahead and put in that the steel grid and the water yeah, deluge. Do you think that will fully address the issue of the? wider than expected debris field? And are you expecting any pushback from 
environmental and kind of community groups that this that this event did put debris where it wasn't expected. Yeah, the we're going to be putting down a lot of steel. The debris is really just basically sand and, and rock, so it's not not toxic at all or anything. It's just it's like a sandstorm essentially, basically a human-made sandstorm. But we don't want to do that again. We were we're going to be putting down a a, a very strong steel sandwich that is basically a water jacketed sandwich that's two layers of thick very thick plate steel that that are also perforated on the upper side so that you have what is basically a massive super strong steel shower head pointing up and then the water pressure has coming out of there has to exceed the the pressure that the engines the thrust is exerting on the steel plate on the beneath the launch stand which is is all doable and, and being done and so it should be much less dusty and we should not have a rock tornado with the next flight. Hey, Elon, it's Joey from Reuters. Why couldn't you install that before this launch? Was that a technical reason or a regulatory reason? No, it wasn't ready. It's not like we expected. We'd expected to dig a hole. We would not have flown. So the, the reason we, we would not expect <laughs> to excavate a hole. We'd done a static fire of the booster, and that, that had just resulted in... A fairly modest erosion of the high-strength concrete at the base, which is called fondag. It's a sort of special, basically the strongest, highest temperature form of concrete that you can get, steel reinforced and everything. And so we thought it would be fine for one launch. We would erode some amount of the concrete, but that it would be fine. We certainly didn't expect to effectively, what looks like when we went up to full thrust, probably shattered the concrete. So... Is it possible that the base layer failed first and not the actual fondag layer on top? It is. We are getting into some amount of speculation here, but it's one of the explanations and one of the more probable explanations is that when we were, when we went up to full thrust that the that we may have compressed the sand underneath the concrete to such a degree that the concrete effectively bent and then cracked. That's a, that is a leading theory. But as I said, we definitely want to not have that gain. And Fondag was never our long-term goal. We thought it would just be fine for one launch. We'd erode some Fondag, just as we did with the, the booster static fire. And, and then for the next launch, we were going to put in the steel, the mega steel pancake. This thing's a beast. Why the steel pancake over like a flame trench or something like that? You could do it either way. But the, and that's just different schools of thought there. The important thing is that you have a regeneratively cooled, like where, wherever the flame is hitting, that, you, that that is regeneratively and evaporatively cooled. So what you'll see is a, a, a quite a big steam cloud, but not a dust cloud. So, that we, you know, so we, and we've run sims both ways. You could do it both ways, but, and, and they both work. The acoustic environment is worse with a flat plate, as you might imagine. But the payload is so far up in the if the payload 400 feet away from where the plane, from where the plume is impinging, so it's so far away that the acoustics are not actually not that bad in the payload fairing. So we don't have to worry too much about it being too loud in the payload fairing. And uh, yeah, so it can be done either way. But this this is one way, and we're pretty confident this will work. And we're going to extend the steel out beyond just underneath the rocket because we want to make sure we don't dig up concrete elsewhere. And, and then it, 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 we're going to connect the load of the, the massive steel sandwich underneath the launch pad into the 
launch mount legs. So it can take that load in tension like, as well as compression. So anyway, I, th I think we're, we're pretty good about that. You'll see it come together in the next month or so. But like I said, that, that actually we're, that does not currently appear to be what prevented the rocket from getting further than it did. There was, uh, there appears to be like perhaps a flame path somewhere within the vehicle structure that as some of the engines failed, there, there may be, a, it would appear to be a, like a flame path to a piece of avionics or control system that knocked out the thrust vector control. Once, once you knock out thrust vector control, the rocket no longer has steering authority. What, I, what things do you think went better than you expected and what things went worse than you expected? It was pretty close to what I expected, at least in this, in this, for this flight, it was pretty close to what I expected. Getting past Max-Q was a pretty big deal. I was actually quite shocked. I don't know why. I had that whole, the fins and the flaps up front and all that stuff, especially starting to lose control authority with TVC going out. That was pretty impressive. The thing just kept chugging along and punching right through. So that was my big one. If it made it through Max-Q, I was going to consider that a pretty big milestone for sure. Yeah, definitely. That's for sure an important milestone. Um, and it got pretty close to stage separation. If we had maintained uh, thrust vector control and throttled up, which we, we should have, because uh, we needed to compensate. We'd lost too many engines, so we needed to, uh, we, had, we should have throttled up the remaining engines to make up for the missing ones. But if we'd not lost, if we'd throttled up the remaining engines and maintained thrust vector control, we would have made it to staging, which would be cool. You know, so that, that's our goal for the next flight is make it to staging and ho hopefully succeed in staging and uh, get, get to orbit. Did, so I think we've got a decent shot of getting to orbit with the next flight. Did the my, my, booster command yeah. separation, did it actually try letting go of, of Starship and it just couldn't because of something? Or did it not even get that far in the program? No, unfortunately it did not get to the point where it would do separation. Now, one, one could argue that at the point at which the booster is kaput, the ship may as well just take off and keep going but the problem is that we have a very precise targeted entry point in the pacific the ship really wouldn't have the delta blast the, the, the capability of reaching that target point yeah you uh, so <laughs> even if we, you wouldn't want it re-entering yeah, over africa or something and then just touching down right, randomly right. yeah exactly yeah so it's it, it would only be worth really starting the ship if the ship is able to complete its mission and reach its targeted landing point just west of Hawaii. Elon, would you change the flight profile all, and what would you have to do to actually reach orbit as opposed to the 146 miles that this one seemed like that would have been the max altitude? Yeah, yeah. so orbit's mostly about velocity rather than altitude, but I'd say I think we've got a better than 30% chance of reaching orbit on the next flight. So I'd... I'd so that my expectation for the next flight would be more likely to reach orbit than not. And are you actually and, and with, are you going to be attempting yeah. orbit or like doing the same profile of re-entering over Hawaii and that whole thing? Yeah, it, it, we're just going to do a repeat, basically. Cool. The goal of these early missions is just information. We don't have any payload or anything. It's let's try to learn as much as possible. And so, and that's why I would consider this to be a success because since the goal of the 
the flight was to learn a lot and we learned a lot, I would characterize it as a success. Obviously not a complete success, but still nonetheless successful. And I always want to frame this, the difficulty of this with respect to the the sort of Soviet Union, Warsaw Pact, rocket developments of the past, for which I have a lot of respect. But, but back when Russia and Ukraine were working together, they made great, they did great stuff in space, I have to say. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Maybe one day they can return to that. Much more productive. The, like the N1 program is always worth, I always recommend people read the history of the, the Soviet N1 program, which was the competitor rocket to the Saturn V, your Saturn V moon rocket. And that's, uh, that's a point you're talking about late 60s, early 70s, where the Soviets were really at their A game. They were just really fantastic. They, so they had A-plus players. It's fair to say that their motivation was maximized. Success means you're a hero of the Soviet Union. Failure, you're probably going to the gulag. <laughs> <laughs> so A-plus so players, maximum motivation. And still the N1 failed. It, it never reached orbit. So those, those are, that's, that's the team for one. You really have to have a tremendous amount of respect for the N1 team, and they did not succeed. Well, so, and it didn't help that Glushko never wanted that thing anyway. He wanted his own, he wanted his own mega rocket. And then once Korelyov died, it was game over for that poor thing. The, the Soviet Union certainly suffered a, a massive loss with Karlev dying. He was their Bob Brown, basically. So... That for Karlov is awesome. It's like losing your best player at the worst time, really. But nonetheless, it's, there were so many super smart people on that program, and the, they really knew what they were doing with rockets and maximum motivation. They did not succeed. So it's just always bearing that. The N1 is the closest to Starship of any rocket that's flown. And a Starship is actually a bit more risky in some ways, in that we've got a cryogenic fuel. And the thing about a cryogenic fuel is it can gasify and form fuel oxygen pockets and that kind of thing it's always harder to deal with the gas with a, a cryogenic fuel than with a fuel that is liquid at room temperature kerosene basically rocket grade jet fuel is which is what falcon and the n1 used so we've got real risk in that respect we're running a higher chamber pressure engine that's full flow stage combustion so it's the most complex and difficult engine configuration but the one with the highest efficiency and we're using autogenous pressurization, which I don't think they did. And you know, so those are things. And our scale, our scale is also bigger. We're about twice the mass and about, I think, 60% more thrust than an N1. So if you, if, and if you don't mind me asking here, why do you think Starship will succeed using a similar, even not just the multi-engine philosophy or anything like that, but just even the general like test-by-flying philosophy of the N1. Why do you think there's four flights of the N1 never made it to stage separation? Why do you think Starship will succeed in it with all the comparisons that are so similar to it? We do have a production line that if it takes us 10 flights, we'll do it. They would eventually have succeeded with the N1. They just decided that it was too expensive to continue and they wanted to do other things. So after they had those failures, they, and I guess it was probably pretty embarrassing at a national level, but I do think that the Starship design. If you've got a if you've got a rocket with light engines as we do, if you have extremely good engine isolation, so that if an engine fails, it does not cause a failure of neighboring engine or the stage itself, you have a very robust design. Because then you lose one of thirty three engines. That's a three percent thrust loss. It's not a big deal. But if you do not have good engine isolation, and an engine failure can domino to other engines or to parts of the stage 
then you have an extremely unreliable design. So that's why with, with, with Booster 7, but especially Booster 9, we've gone to so much trouble to isolate the engines. And so if one engine goes wrong, it does not knock out other engines or damage the rest of the stage. Yeah. So I think it's, it, at, 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 when all is said and done, this will be an extremely reliable design. But you, it's absolutely fundamental to achieve engine isolation. Elon, do you expect HLS to be Starship HLS to be the long pole for Artemis Three? No, definitely don't. I think we will be we will be the first thing to be really be. I think we'll no. I think we will be for the yeah. That we will not be a limiting factor at all. Elon, how much do you expect to spend in this kind of prototype development phase before one of these starships actually starts flying real payloads, either in Starlink or otherwise? And how many kind of tests are you targeting before that? Hopefully we can get four flights out this year, maybe five. And we should be... I would be surprised if we exit this year without getting to orbit. I'd say it's not a hard, it's not a hard percent probability, but I think we've probably got an eighty percent plus probability of reaching orbit this year, and pretty. And I don't want to tempt fate here, knock on wood, but I think close to one hundred percent chance of reaching orbit within twelve months. But the thing to bear in mind is, like SpaceX is actually quite good at production, so like extremely like the best in history of any rocket maker with production. And we're making a, a Falcon Nine upper stage, which is a large complex machine every three or four days and, and a raptor and every day right now yes we're capable of, we're actually slowed it down slightly because we've got more raptors than we know what to do with so we're actually focusing a bit more on the raptor side on on upgrades mostly to improve the reliability and the robustness of the engine some performance improvements as well and the cost of all this like how, how much do you expect to spend on all that either this year or before you start flying real payloads It's probably be a couple billion dollars this year, two billion dollars ish. All in on Starship. And uh, there's a kind of a struggle by other companies to raise funds lately for a number of reasons. And SpaceX has usually been insulated from that. But do you see any kind of difference nowadays? Is SpaceX kind of thinking about fundraising differently? And does that affect how the pressure on this Starship program at all? We do not uh, anticipate needing to raise funding. No, we think we we, we, don't, we don't think we need to raise funding. We'll do our standard thing where we provide liquidity to employees who are in stock. But to the best of my knowledge, we do not need to raise incremental funding for SpaceX. And Elon, we want to be sensitive over here. Um, yeah, probably like another five ten minutes. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was going to say how much time. And I did want to get, it'd be fun to get some new people in here. John Krauss, I know I hadn't said anything yet, and also Mary Liz. So John, I saw you start to speak there for a hey. second. Yeah, I have a fun question. The lean off the pad, was that intentional? Was it more than you thought it might be? Was it related to the engines out? And do you expect to do that on future more operational launches? <laughs> no, we're not. We, the, it was it's related to the engines out. And we, we do not normally expect to lean. It should be aspirationally going straight up. There will be some debate as to, because you can, so for the next flight, we're going to start the engines faster and get off the pad faster. I think we're from start, from engine start to actually moving was around five seconds, which is really a long time to be blasting the pad. 
We're going to try to get that down to about half that time, maybe two and a half seconds. Start the engines faster and, and then and throttle up faster and just get off the deck and don't reduce how much we blast the pad. And then there's a debate of do you keep the rocket over the pad, in which case you, there's more cooking of the base, or do you, start, do you start moving sideways sooner? If you move sideways sooner, you are moving that big cutting torch across mm-hmm. the launch ring. <laughs> so if you can think of this thing like the world's biggest cutting torch, basically. And so it, it, like we have big steel plates over the top of the launch ring, but I, I think depending on how close the engines are, they, they erode that steel at a roughly, and I think half, half an inch to an inch per second of high strength, high strength steel is eroded by the cutting torch. <laughs> so you don't want to be too, you want the engines to be too close to the launch ring before you, you start moving sideways. With it, with it doing data, that, like, what's the opposite? Yeah, and, and on this one, as it did move across the launch ring because it, it eated out there sideways, did it torch the top of the launch ring too bad, or did it actually hold up pretty good? It actually held up surprisingly well. So we actually were glad to see that there's there appears to be minimal damage to the launch ring and to the components inside the launch ring. So that's great because that launch ring is takes take six six months to build up a new launch ring. We have some spares, but that's. There's a lot of complex plumbing and wiring inside launch ring, and that, that actually appears to be in good shape. Um, hey, I just had one quick question. Speaking of that launch ring, like liftoff conditions topic, why couldn't you wait like a month to install that steel plate for it to be ready? Why, when, why launch before that's ready? As I said, we did the, there's a static fire of the booster with the concrete, the pond egg, and we saw mod- manageable amounts of erosion. We, we thought the launch would have increased erosion, but would not smash the concrete. So it was not our expectation to smash the concrete. We did not think it would, would that, that would occur based on the data we saw from the static fire. If we thought that would occur, then we would have waited for the steel. The steel was really meant not, it was is intended to be, have a launch pad that requires minimal, basically no refurbishment. That's the intent, the intent of the, the sort of water cool steel, mega steel sandwich. And was the communications blackout the reason the staging event didn't happen, or was it because it just didn't get to that point and started tumbling before? Yeah, it just didn't get to what it would consider to be a safe point to do stage separation. Now, and I should point out, like, stage separation itself is a dodgy thing, and many a rocket in the past has, has failed at stage separation. We're putting a lot of attention on, like I said, I don't want to get too confident, but I feel... Like it's re- we're really quite likely to get to stage separation with the next flight, and so then we want to make sure that we actually execute the stage separation because it it, it is different from Falcon. It's yeah, so that, that's we want to get through that stage separation, light the ship, and c- complete what, almost a full orbit. It, it's actually got the the delta velocity is almost identical to orbit, but so, so we actually could send it to a decently good orbit, but we, we want to we want to test the entry system of the ship. So tra- test the ship heat shield in the high. So get to orbit and then ideally deorbit with the ship, so we can test the how well the heat shield works for the ship portion of the vehicle. Yeah, 
Let's grab one more Mary Liz Bender. Uh, actually, Mary Liz Shalinsky. Sorry. Yeah, I yeah. need to figure out how to change my handle here. <laughs> Elon, that, that launch was so epic. I don't know how you felt in Mission Control. Maybe you were nervous and paying attention to data, but for the rest of us that have witnessed years and years of Falcon launches and many other launches, I think it's safe to say that was <laughs> the most epic launch of them all. And I hope you got a chance to really enjoy it. I was actually wondering about that moment in the room with your team, or maybe for you personally, like, how did this compare to the other firsts that you've gone through in the Falcon program with Hopper? Like, how did you feel? Yeah, no, I was very excited. I thought the SpaceX team did amazing work. And this is really one of the hardest technical projects that humanity's ever done, this if you say fully reusable, humongous rocket, full, fully and rapidly reusable, reliable rocket that of unusual size, <laughs> the, 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 this is certainly a candidate for hardest technical problem done by humans. Yeah, it's the candidate. A bit. So I think the team's done excellent work on, on a very hard problem, and I think we're actually up, I'm upbeat about the next twelve months. I think we're going to get to orbit. And then the, it'll probably take us a few more years to achieve reuse, reusability on a regular basis where we bring the booster back and bring the ship back and uh, where it gets, to, you know, it'll take a few years to get to where Falcon 9 is today, where it is now quite normal for the rocket to land. <laughs> It'd be weird if it doesn't land these days. You know? yeah. so, Isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Hitting the bullseye of a ship out in stormy weather. <laughs> if that ship is not anchored. It's literally trying to keep position. It's holding to a GPS position, and the rocket's flying to that position. It still manages to hit the bullseye in a storm. You make it look. You so, guys make it look so easy. It's crazy every time yeah. to watch that happen. Yeah, <laughs> but like I said, it, it's a testament to the awesome team. And it, it is Elon, this, this will just be my. Sorry, I just had one more question. There's a lot of opposition from these environmental groups in the area over the debris, and I just wanted to get your reaction to that since. Some didn't expect the debris to go as far as it seemed to go. And if there is a legal challenge in court, you know, either against SpaceX or the FN, how would SpaceX respond and, and what would that do to the timeline? Yeah, I think if you said for practical purposes, what was, I think like you, you, if you were to say like at this point, look at an aerial picture of the area and apart from the area around the launch stand, t tell me where things are damaged. It's actually, you can't, I think you can't even see it at this point. So the, it's not like the, the rocket uses non-toxic propellants, and uh, so it did scatter a lot of dust. But it's, it's the, to the best of our knowledge, like there has not been any meaningful damage to the environment that we're aware of. And to be um, honest, I was out there at the pad two days after. There's a huge storm on Saturday, like 70, 80 mile an hour winds. Yeah, and, that was intense. And like I saw more debris coming off the shore from like people's docks falling into the water and like capsized boats. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I did anything more than just some bits of concrete, which you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, to exceed the damage done by a hurricane is quite difficult. Hurricanes, na nature, the power of nature is immense compared to uh, we are, we are still feeble compared <laughs> to the power of nature. A little tiny miniature <laughs> hurricane. We're really tiny. Like, I look at Starship and say, wow, that seems so big to us humans. But if you zoomed out and we're looking at Earth from a distance, you wouldn't even see Starship. It'd be like, yeah. I think I see a tiny little dot jumping off of the surface, maybe. 
Yeah. It's like we're like microbes trying to get from one dust mode to another dust mode. Did you see the footage? Did, um... By the way, like pad footage of how like dark and crazy it got. It it does. It's crazy because it looks so violent and wild. It looks like a miniature tornado just for a minute there. But some of the footage is actually terrifying to imagine. If you were obviously no one's around it at the time, but it is nuts the amount of power that thing has. Yes, it's. Yes, and we actually were recently looking at the like the raptor throat. We believe is the highest heat flux of any human-made object ever. <laughs> Whoa! How does it survive? Is it somehow just... that plasma has to go through a throat? <laughs> Can you... How did that throat not melt? Seriously. That's crazy. And literally, how does it that, from a massive amount of like, film cooling and regenerative cooling? Yeah, it's keep getting cooled. Regen- it's like getting crazy regen cooling, and uh, like we're flowing liquid methane at extreme pressure, eleven thousand psi through through the jacket. At so it's ripping, <laughs> and then you combine that with foam cooling and the best thermal barrier coatings we can come up with. But it's still shocking that we do not vaporize the throat of that engine in immediately. <laughs> it's, the, the heat transfer is so insane. But that's what we live on a planet with a lot of, with strong gravity and a thick atmosphere. So it's, this is what's needed if we were to become a space-faring civilization and build a base on the moon and a city on Mars and, you know, multi-planet species, which is, I think, a super exciting future. And at, at a high level, the super cool thing here is that, hey, this thing kind of works and we're going to solve the issues that are remaining and we'll get it to orbit and we'll make it reusable. And that means that we have a, a real path here to get humanity to Mars. Awesome. That's, that's mind-blowing. Elon, I'm, I want to let other people talk here, but I did want to say just on behalf of all of us that the production work that you guys put on, like the actual show, we all greatly appreciate it. I think that was like one of the most amazing launch coverages I've ever seen. And I think a lot of us were like hoping that you guys were going to give us cool angles and you guys by far exceeded the expectations. Yeah. I greatly appreciate that. And I think everybody else does as well. That's so, thank chat. you. Yeah, you guys are most welcome. And I just want to say, super appreciate your support and uh, and always looking for critical feedback and stuff. Support and critical feedback is always extremely welcome. And and, and thanks for helping bring the public along for the ride because at the end of the day, if, we, if the support of the public is essential. And and it's also about inspiring the public. There, there are all these like things in the world that are reasons to be like sad about the future and say, but you need. But there's got to be things that you wake up in the morning and inspire you and just be excited about the future of life. And this is one of them. And you guys are key to conveying that to the public. So thank you. You guys are doing it for us as well. So it goes both ways. Yeah, <laughs> hey, Elon, just a quick question, Chris, for a minute. Uh, are you looking hey, to Chris. fly with Booster 9 and Ship 28 for this next flight? <laughs> are you still deciding that one? Because there are 25s at yeah. Macy's, isn't it? I don't know if you're going with 25 or 28. The, we've not made a final decision on the ship. That's why I was referring to Booster 9, but I was somewhat, I did not mention the ship number. I know. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good catch there. Yeah, I think we'll probably make that decision this this week. But I think we want we do want to bet on success in the sense that if we get to orbit, it would be super helpful to try a deorbit and see how well the the ship heat shield works. And because yeah, we need to maintain control in hypersonic high heating regime, then get through transonic, and then maintain control all the way through a, a, a very wide array of Mach regimes. And so the vehicle actually behaves dif- differently 
with a radically different heating and force at the various coming back from like roughly Mach 23 to zero. Yeah, so we do. I think we want to have that option. So I think we'll put a ship on that gives us that capability. But we haven't decided exactly which ship number it should be. Hey, Elon, this is Michael Sheets of CNBC. Quick question on the launch tower side of things. Have you cataloged the damage to the equipment? It looks like some of the tanks were hit by debris and there's quite a lot scattered around. Do you know, could you give us like a rundown of what you guys need to replace versus repair? We're going to be replacing a bunch of the tanks in the tank farm, but these are tanks that we wanted to replace anyway. So the we're going with more of the vacuum jacketed giant hot dog looking tanks as opposed to the... <laughs> so the, yeah, the vacuum jacketed giant hot dog tanks, so the, the, those are in the best shape and those are what we want anyway. So some of the tanks will be yeah probably removing and replacing with the hot dog tanks. The tower itself is in good shape. We see no no meaningful damage to the tower, even though it did get hit with some pretty big chunks of concrete. And again, yeah, like I said, we'll be installing the big water, water jacketed steel sandwich thing under the pad, uh, doing final prep on the next booster and ship, and ho- hopefully be ready to fly again in a couple months. Once again, excitement guaranteed, success is not. But I do think I'm cautiously optimistic. I think we've got this time we've got a better than 50% chance of reaching orbit. So that would be incredibly exciting. Is that steel plate the only thing that you guys are implementing to? reduce the amount of debris that gets everywhere or is are there other fixes that you're considering to to fix that there's a bunch of other things we're doing so there's going to be a lot of steel plating so not just underneath the directly underneath the the rocket but also extending beyond that and also tying the whole structure in together with the legs which which go those legs go down very deep and then just in general we want to have a launch pad that over time requires no refurbishment between flights. And that means obviously not throwing out chunks of concrete. Rapidly reusable rockets and reusable launch pads. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. Totally. On on the launch site itself, it looks like it slid a little bit off the pad instead of going like straight vertical like Falcon does. Was that part of the profile or was that because of the engine failures? No, that's because of engine failures. Yeah. All right, I better sign off now, but... We'll be, I'll do another update once we've resolved some of these questions like the exact configuration of the next flight and the upgrades to the launch pad and anything else. So probably uh, in about three weeks-ish, I'll do another update and, and kind of let you know what we've learned. As always, I'm like, I try to be like, tell people like with the good, the bad, and the ugly so that it's like we, we would tell you our dumb things that we've done and maybe some things that we think are pretty smart. And, and uh, yeah, it's yeah, so it's awesome. Yeah, we so, appreciate your time, Elon. Get out of here and have a good Saturday night. And thanks so much for all the updates that you gave us. We love all these juicy details. So keep up the good work. We look forward to the next one. Yeah, uh, you're most welcome. I try to think of if I wasn't involved with this, what are all the things I'd want to know? So that I try to tell, I tell you, try to tell you those things. <laughs>